Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. begin with a word of prayer. Dear gracious King, we ask that you be with us in this time. Help us to see how our brothers and sisters acted with the possessions you gave them, how their heart cared more about their brothers and sisters in Christ than themselves. Sanctify us, correct our hearts where needed, help us to be more obedient and trusting of you, give us understanding of this material. And give me uh, clarity of speech, Lord, please. In your son's precious name, amen. So we'll just jump right into it. If we look at 2 Corinthians 8, we will follow the story of the Macedonian churches. Let's read the first three verses. Now, brothers and sisters, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily. These churches consisted of the likes of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, among others, and were very poor churches, extremely poor. Dirt broke. I mean like Christ the Rock Church of Valeria would be considered rich to them, kind of broke. These were young churches still in the early stages of life. So introducing the Macedonian churches, Macedonia was severely impoverished. It had been, this is a little history on this time, it had been a Roman territory for over 200 years. They had been treated cruelly by the Romans. They had been reduced to almost slavish relationships to Rome, their resources confiscated and their riches brandished. Also for a number of years prior to this period of time, civil wars had been fought there involving the Caesars and other uh, familiar military names like Brutus and Cassius and Antononius and others. And the wars that they fought in Macedonia had also had an impoverishing effect. Macedonia was so impoverished and crippled by taxes of Rome that at one point, Rome eliminated the taxes just so the people could crawl out of their holes they were in and reach the level of survival. But yet, you can see Paul states they gave, and their giving was overflowing. And so, we'll park that thought for a minute and circle back later as we discuss the Church of Jerusalem. The Church of Jerusalem. 
The church of Jerusalem was the church Paul was seeking support for. This church was the church where Pentecost occurred, and thus really the original church was started. The church of Jerusalem was populated by two groups of people, pilgrims and and persecuted Jews, and had three drains on their economy, the pilgrims, persecuted Jews, and the Roman Empire. So the pilgrims were the people who made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish feast. It was followed, it followed 40 days after Passover. And you know from a little bit of Jewish background that the Jews like to migrate or to pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the great religious festivals. They came not only from around the land of Israel itself, but many of them came from all over the place where Jews had been scattered in what was known as the Great Dysphoria or the Great Dispersion. So all these Jews gathered to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast, and what happens? As we know, 3,000 people are converted, many of whom are pilgrims. We see that in chapter 2 of Acts, and then in chapter 4, 5,000 men are converted. Probably additional women and, uh, and children are converted. Now the church is in the thousands, and many of, the, many of these are pilgrims. There was only one church in the whole world at that time, and that was the church of Jerusalem. And it was only a matter of a few weeks old. That's quite the uh, growth, huh? A couple of weeks and the population, 5,000, 7,000. There was no other place in the world to go to church. There weren't any other apostles in the world. They had just been born into the church and the church itself had been born. They had just received the powerful expressions of the Holy Spirit. Miracles were a constant daily experience at the hands of the apostles. There was a joy and a euphoria and a bliss and excitement and enthusiasm that caused them not to want to go home. There was nothing to go home to. No church, no miracles, no apostles, no teachers, no nothing. Joy and exuberance, meeting every day from house to house and in the temple, rejoicing and praising God and eating and celebrating communion and rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the birth of the church, the only Christians, the only fellowship, the only apostles, they didn't want to go back. Well, when they had come as pilgrims originally, they were staying in inns, but they couldn't afford to stay there permanently. And so they would have to vacate the inns they stayed in, or they would stay with Jewish relatives, people from their family heritage. But then they couldn't stay there any longer now because they had become Christians, and that made it very, very difficult because now they would be alienated from their families for their belief. And though there were outsiders staying there and and should have been treated with hospitality, once they became Christians, they no longer were to be received into those Jewish homes. And so they would be dispossessed, and where would they go? Well, they would have to go live with other, uh, other believers. And so they would have to move in with the Jewish believers who lived in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. And that little band of Jewish believers trying to absorb all these thousands and thousands of uh, converted pilgrims made a valiant effort to do so, but it was no easy task. It got complex. And as chapter 6 of Acts tells us, there were many Hellenistic widows. That means that there were many pilgrim widows who had come in, converted to Christ, and stayed. You can be sure that the people who stayed tended to be the poor people, the widows, the orphans, and the people who had nothing to go home to. Many of them had become Jewish slaves in the Roman Empire. They wouldn't go back to their slavery 
the people who would go back would be uh, would be people who had an estate, who had a business, who had a very important job in the government somewhere, who had great responsibility, who operated their own in their own environment. Those people would go back to what was pressing for them, and so that uh, those who would stay, most of those who would stay, would be the poor who had nothing to return to. So you got a church full of people who are seeking support from a church that was just born, who had no support to give in, in, the, in the kind of sense that these people were needing. Um, second category was perse persecuted Jews. Persecution was a drain on the church, and these Jews were accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior, the same Jesus the Jews recently crucified. They would lose their social status, jobs, family, and careers. You have to understand Jerusalem is the holy city. There was no question about it, and it was the most sacred place on earth to, de to devout Jews. It is there that they are more concerned about their religion than anywhere else. It is there that their ex exclusivism reaches its pinnacle, their legalism and their animosity toward anyone who, re who rejects Judaism. You can see it even to this very day, and if anything, it was even more fierce in that, in that time. And the people who were converted from among the inhabitants of Jer Jerusalem would be immediately rejected, even as they are today. When someone in the Orthodox Jewish family in Jerusalem comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are immediately rejected, they are alienated. They would become the victims of hostile hatred, social alienation, excommunication from the synagogue, complete rejection. They would lose their business, they would lose their jobs, they would lose their source of income, everything would dis disappear. They would be disowned by their family, and so what you had there was a whole lot of pilgrims who had nothing and a whole lot of di dispossessed Jews who had nothing either. So two groups of people having not much to, to offer at this time. And then thirdly, lastly, what was a drain on the, uh, the church was the Roman Empire itself. Along with that, you had the great Roman Empire that was, that was being a drain on the church as well. The Roman Empire itself was not necessarily rich, but they had soldiers and weapons and typically would leech off other nations by force and drain their economies into the Roman Empire's economy. The Roman Empire economy itself during the occupation of Palestine had an impoverishing effect on the land itself. So a combination of this led to the Church of Jerusalem being very poor. Now, as we read in Acts through our study of Acts, you'll remember how believers in this church who had land, money, wealth, possessions initially did sell it and distribute to those who had needs. We see that early on there was a great generosity and they made a, made a very valiant effort to meet their needs, probably more so than any church in history. But soon the church was depleted because of all the reasons above, but yet they continued to grow. All of this moved Paul as he was on his missionary journeys um, he wanted to seek help from the Gentile, Gentile churches to help the church in Jerusalem. So, the Christian model of giving. So now understanding the struggles the Jerusalem church was facing, we can understand Paul, better Paul's heart to, to seek financial help while he was on his missionary trips. I mean, the J Jerusalem church has been through so much and was supporting so many people, they were in need of help. But now, reverting back to the beginning of today's studies, it's interesting that the church that becomes the model for Christian giving is itself a very impoverished church group of churches. So let's read again 2 Corinthians verses 1 through 2. Now, brothers and sisters, we make known to you the grace of God 
which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So noting a few, thi- a few things, five, tr- five truths you can say that stuck out from these two verses. One, their giving was initiated by God's grace. Verse 1 states how the grace of God was given to the churches in Macedonia. So their giving... So the giving that was happening was something that was supernaturally motivated. They're giving, two, they're giving transcended difficult circumstances. Paul is clear to state that how they are suffering through great affliction. So even though one would probably say the Macedonian churches were the ones in need, they were actually the ones pouring out giving to other churches in need. Uh, Three, that while going through this affliction and suffering through their own poverty, they still had an abundance of joy and when giving was giving with joy. That's a little different way of handling things uh, than we're used to here in America. When, things, when we're struggling here, we tend to kind of batten up the hatches uh, and dig in. We're trying to stay positive and joyful, but not always successful. These guys had nothing and were giving the barely anything they had and had such a positive and joyful attitude while doing it. So it's just, it's an interesting to see, you know, just from growing up in this time, um, like I said, we batten up the hatches. Times are times are tough, but t- times get tough. Give, giving goes down. If we were giving, uh, we start thinking more about the providing of our own families, and to an to an extent that makes sense because you want to be able to provide. Um, but it's just interesting to see the way they they act to the way we act nowadays. For and though they were in poverty. It did not hinder their giving. Instead, their deep poverty overflowed. They had very little, but the very little they ha- uh, did have, their mindset was, we want to help our brothers and sisters who are struggling elsewhere. And then five, their giving was liberal. It was generous. It overflowed in the, abund- in the, sorry, it overflowed in the abundance of their generosity. Now, in verses three through, three through four, it says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily, begging us with much urging for the favor or participation in the support of the saints. And so here we got a couple more points. Let's understand first that Paul is stating everything so far as a way of first-hand experience. He says, for I testify. This isn't hearsay. This isn't Paul just spitballing. What Paul is writing to the Corinthians is he has first-hand knowledge of. He founded these churches, knows them well, knew their leadership in their hearts. Two, there was giving, their giving was proportionate. It wasn't a fixed amount. It wasn't a fixed percentage. They gave according to their ability and beyond. They gave what they were capable of giving, and we should too. God doesn't expect you to charge your credit card and go further into debt in order to give but we should be giving what we are capable of giving. Three, not only was their giving proportionate, but also it was sacrificial. Now, what I'm about to read, I took directly from Grace to You because I thought Johnny Mac said it very well. In verse three, it says, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave. So they gave what they had, but they gave it in proportions that were sacrificial. Their giving was beyond what could or would be expected of such poor Christians. In fact, their giving would be a contradiction to their condition. 
And I remind you of verse 2 that they gave out of deep poverty and in a greater deal of affliction. Times were difficult. Life was difficult. They had very little. They were extremely poor. A contradiction in their condition when compared to the generosity and overflowing abundance of their liberality. But with no regard for themselves, with no regard for their future needs, compelled by concern and care and love and compassion and obedience and all of those things, they were glad to place themselves in an impoverished position even further, dependent on God and believed that God would supply all their needs. As Philippians 4.19 says, May God supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Jesus Christ. They believed that. They believed they needed to take no thought for what they should eat or drink or wear because God would meet that need. They believed that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 is exactly what he meant, that if he clothed the grass of the field and the lilies of the fields and, the, and feeds the birds of the air, he is going to take care of his own. And it was in that attitude that they gave like the widow in Mark 12, they gave generously and they gave sacrificially like David who said, I will not give the Lord that which cost me nothing. They were not about to give God something that didn't represent sacrifice. They were glad to place themselves in deeper dependence on God to supply their needs by demonstrating generosity to the poor saints at Jerusalem who they had never even met, but for whom they had a heart of compassion. And so we find in verse 3 that their giving was proportionate, but not just proportionate. That is to say, not just out of what they had, but sacrificial. End quote. Number four, their giving was voluntarily voluntary. It says in verse three that they gave of their own accord. This was their choice. They decided to do it. In the Greek, the term used here is actually authoritos, which meant one who chooses his own course of action. There was no coercion, no manipulation. It was out of their own hearts. What I'm going to read next, don't take it as 100% truth. It was just something through studying. It was interesting, this part. Uh, there's, um, it's just interesting. You'll, you'll, see, you'll see where I'm going with this. What's interesting is though Paul was probably intending on seeking financial support while on his missionary journeys, it's possible, possible, in regards to the Macedonian churches, Paul wasn't even going to ask them to give due, their, due to their deep poverty. Uh, John MacArthur states the following. If you look at chapter 9 and verse 2, Paul says, I know your readiness in this matter of giving to the Corinthians, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia had been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Interesting. What was the original motivation for the Macedonians? Apparently, from what he's saying here, it was the zeal of the Corinthians down in the province of Achaia. It was the zeal of the Corinthians that stirred up the Macedonians originally. Now, remember what we have here. As Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, we told you that it was a year that has passed since he first told the Corinthians about giving. A year ago, he had told the Corinthians about giving and they had started to give. We, we saw that right there in chapter 8, they had already begun to give as much as a year before. Apparently, it was, their, it was their initial interest in responding to Paul and giving that the Macedonians heard about. 
When Paul told the Macedonians about the generosity of the Corinthians, it stirred up the Macedonians to want to give. So we could suggest then that the Macedonians were following the example of the Corinthians who started a year before and that the Corinthians' generosity initially motivated the Macedonians and then they just ran with it. And maybe Paul never really overtly asked them to give knowing how poor they were. They volunteered it based on the pattern of the Corinthians. They wanted to get involved as well. Uh, and it does state in verse 4, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. This too seems to support the notion that Paul was reluctant to seek support because of how little they had. But through continued pressure from the begging of the saints, Paul accepted their giving. So to recap so far a bit for verses 1 through 2, we learn, we learn that giving is the behavior of devout Christians in regards to the Macedonians. Their giving was initiated by God's grace. Their giving transcended difficult circumstances. Their giving was joyous and lastly was not hindered by poverty. Then verse 3, their giving was proportionate, sacrificial, and voluntarily, voluntary. In these ways we are to give too, but there's more. Giving is a privilege, not an obligation. How many of you would say that? Let's look at verse 4, speaking of the Macedonians. It says, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Begging is such a strong word. It's used in Luke eight twenty eight when the demon is pleading with Jesus not to torment him. And not only are they begging, but they are begging with much urging. They are begging for the favor of participating in the fellowship of the saints through giving. I do not recall us ever going through that kind of situation. They're begging for the privilege of giving, for the blessing, the grace, the benediction of being partners, sharing in the support of the saints. MacArthur says they're viewed, they viewed giving as a privilege, not an obligation. They viewed giving as a way to express their generosity on behalf of the fellowship, their love of the brotherhood that they never even met. They viewed giving as a way to be partners in a shared life. They viewed giving as a way to express grace and blessing and to receive it in return from God. Giving it was a way to support the ministry, so they were literally begging for the personal blessing of sharing in the needs of the saints they had not met, not because of any other thing than their generous hearts. Now in verse 5, we come across another truth, that the giving of the Macedonian was an act of worship. Verse 5 says, And this, not as we expected, but, though, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So what is this verse saying? It was, it was that they were giving total dedication. They gave themselves. Everything becomes available when you give yourselves. There is no limit when you fully give yourselves over. This makes me think in, in a bad way of Romans 1, uh, when God gave them over to their sins. But regarding this, it's a good thing. Nothing was off limits then. In this case, though, they, had, they the Macedonians, were in a good way giving themselves over. And isn't giving yourself an, and isn't giving yourself a supreme act of worship? Romans twelve one says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Yes, we worship on Sundays, and God is pleased with that. Yes, we worship when we praise Him, and God is pleased with that. But what we worship most, and most importantly, when we give ourselves over. When we give ourselves as the offering, when we offer ourselves all that we are 
have and ever hope it to be unconditionally and unreserved to him, and that is what the Macedonians had done. That is the supreme act of worship, and it involves, verse 2, not being conformed to this world. You can't be sucked up in the materialistic realm and do this. You can't be consumed with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life and do this. You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what else does verse 5 say? It says their giving was in submission to their pastors. They, they not only gave themselves to the Lord, they gave themselves, Paul says, to us, to the apostle Paul, and to Titus, and to Timothy, to their pastors, to their spiritual leaders. They were submissive to them. This follows with Peter 5, 5, be subject to your pastors or elders. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. obey your leaders and submit to them. When the apostle Paul told them about this issue, they responded, no matter who they heard it from, I don't know who they heard it from. I don't know if they heard it first from Paul, as stated above. It might have been from Timothy. It might have been from Titus. It might have been from whoever. They responded. And as further word reached them, they responded again. They were submissive to their leaders, and that is the will of God. And just because I'm trying to wrap up, we'll kind of fast forward here and skip a couple of truths. Reading verses 6 through 8, it says, so we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, speaking knowledge, and in all earnestness and in love we, we inspired in you, see that you also excel in this gracious work. I'm not saying this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love as well. So another truth we can take away is their giving was proof of love. When you give, you should be giving out of love. And you know what? what's also interesting is the fact that Paul writes, I'm not saying this as a command. Why does he say that? Because free will giving is never according to legalism. Your giving is not commanded, not required. We looked at that in our last study. Required giving amounts to taxation. Free will giving is just that, freely giving. Uh, a reminder of our last study, we looked at the Old Testament and looked at the, at the established two kinds of giving, required and free will giving. And basically, required giving boiled down to taxation. So the question is, is the New Testament pattern of giving the same? Yes. In the New Testament, again, you have re reiterated two kinds of giving, two ways in which we give our wealth. The first is to pay our taxes, and the second is to give to God. In fact, the, two, the New Testament is explicit and exact in comparison with the Old Testament. There's no difference at all. Teaching on both these kinds of giving required and free will is clear in the New Testament. And this can be summed up with Jesus telling us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and what God's is God's. Um, what does the New Testament say about free will giving? It says giving amounts are personally determined. Give whatever you want. Looking at chapter 9, verses 2 of 2 Corinthians. Here's how to give. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Let each one do as he has purposed in his heart. You give whatever you want, realizing that whatever you sow is what you're going to harvest. Give, and it shall be given unto you. You can't, uh, you can't outgive God all those principles that we've already uh, discussed. So to sum this all up, the Macedonians are our model. They show us that giving is to be initiated by grace. That is to be a supernatural kind of giving. To be, it is to be transcended. It is to sorry. It is to transcend difficult circumstances. To be done with joy, not hindered with poverty. 
not hindered by poverty. It is to be generous, proportionate, sacrificial, voluntary. It is to be sought as a privilege, not an obligation. It is a part of worship. It is a part of worship. It is to be done in submission to the the pastors and leaders. It is to be in concert and harmony with Christian virtues. And it is to prove our love to God, to his church, and his people. That's the Macedonian giving, the giving of of devout Christians. Such giving, as we've said all along, is the path to blessing, a path, a path I trust you eagerly walk. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray this series has been a blessing to your people, that through your spirit they would make corrections where correction is needed, that they would have a deeper love for others over themselves, that their trust in you would be sincere and grow, and that they would keep to heart the encouragement your word provides in regards to presenting your offerings and caring for the church. In your son's name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.